welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 today. Hebrews chapter 10. While you're turning there, let me tell you a story of maybe one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a movie called Remember the Titans. Raise your hand if you've seen Remember the Titans. Uh, It's a great movie. One of the best movies ever made. Now, Remember the Titans follows a high school football team in Virginia at the T.C. Williams High School in 1971. Now, the reason that's important is in 1971, this is the first year where they were desegregating schools in Virginia. And so this movie follows this school and specifically the football team of the school as you have for the first time mixtures of African American and white students together and specifically for the first time on the football team African Americans and white students playing football together. Now of course this being in the late 60s early 70s there's all kinds of racial division and tension that goes into that and it's even worse because at this time the school had decided to demote the white coach to bring in Coach Boone an African American coach. And so the movie starts for the first third of the movie showing this football team and the coaching staff constantly at each other with all of this racial division, racial disunity, all of this fighting between the two different races. But the movie changes to a field story about a third of the way through. About a third of the way through, I've got a picture coming up here. Two of the team captains, this is Gary and Julius, have a heart-to-heart discussion. Uh, Gary comes to Julius and he says, the attitude of your people, he's speaking of him, of the African Americans, the the attitude of your group of people is horrible. We're never going to win football games like this. You guys are not helping. And Julius looks back at Gary and says, well, it seems that our attitude probably reflects the leadership of this team. And he throws it back in Gary's face. That, that you are causing racial division. Now, I love that because that's a turning point in the story of the movie. And, and the very next play, that, or I'm sorry, the very next practice, there's a play where one of the white players lets a defender go unblocked straight to the African-American quarterback and tackle him. And he kind of laughs and says, hi, we got him. That's kind of the way the team was going. But, but at that moment, here you see Gary has a change of heart and he jumps down the guy's throat. He comes running across the field. He says, what was that? You're not going to get away with that junk while I'm watching. You will do your assignments. You will take care of your business. You will not purposely miss blocks. And if you do, you answer to me. And from that moment forward, the team, with all of this racial division, starts to gel. They become a successful football team. They begin to to work with each other, going on to go most of the season undefeated and becoming very, very close friends. Uh, here's, what, here's what we can learn from this movie. And what I love about this movie is it's based upon a true story. Is that accountability creates a culture of success. Accountability creates a culture of success. The moment somebody stood up and said, you're not going to act like that on my watch. That's when things changed and suddenly this team becomes a success. And so I would argue that that, that obviously works in winning football games. Accountability to each other works for the mission of football games. But what about the mission of the church? What about our mission? Because I I just want to remind you again and again and again, we're not here because it's Sunday morning and we're bored and there's something to do. We come together as Ramsey House because we are on mission for God to see people saved and to see those who are saved grow in Christ and become warriors for Him. 
And, and so if we're a church that's on mission, it makes sense that if we want to be successful in our mission, we have to be accountable to each other. We've been in a series called Empty the Bench, and what we're talking about is what it means to be a church member. Like, like what does it actually mean? Not just to have your name on a roll, but what is our position as church members? And two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of attaching yourself to a team. You need to commit to a church, whether that's here or another church. God has designed you to need to be attached to a church. Last week, we talked about unity in the church and the fact that we see value in our abilities, but also value in people who are different than us, who have different opinions to us. And this week, I want to talk to us about accountability among church members, accountability here at Ramsey Heights and in our community. So we're going to be looking in Hebrews today. Um, Hebrews has an unknown writer. We're not really sure who wrote Hebrews. You will probably hear me mess up and say Paul today. A lot of historians do believe that Paul wrote this, but as it doesn't say for sure, it is an unknown writer. And in this particular part of the book, it's going to be looking at what Jesus has done for us and how we should act in, court, in accordance with that. Based on what you have in Jesus Christ, how you should act in accordance with that. Because it should change us. If I gave you a million dollars today, it should change how you act. Not for the worse, but for the better. You should be more fiscally responsible with that. Most of us probably wouldn't be if the curse of the lottery is true. Like you should be more fiscally conservative with that. You should spend your money wisely. You should also not worry about money so much. It should change who you are. If you have a child, it should change who you are. It should change how you live. And then the same thing as a follower of Christ. If we have Christ, it should change how we act. Read with me chapter 10. This is verses 19 through 21. So having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, through the veil that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that real quick. On your notes, your first take on truth this morning is, I must know who I am in Christ to know how to live in Christ. And we'll say that again. I must know how to live in Christ, or who I am in Christ to know how to live in Christ. That's so important for us. So let me break down because you may be a little confused at what the writer here is getting at. The writer here is using imagery because he's writing this to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people, to the former Israelites. He's using the imagery of a temple, the, the temple of God. Now, if you're familiar with a little bit of Old Testament history, God had designed a dwelling place for him among his people. It was first a tabernacle made out of tents and later built by Solomon, a temple. And within this temple, a place where you went to worship God, something almost like we would think of as a church, a gathering place where you worship God, in the middle of the uh, tabernacle or temple, there was a room. And this room was called the Holy of Holies. And literally this room was God's dwelling place among his people. Because of our sin at this time, God was separated from us. God cannot look upon our sin. It is ugly, vile, and disgusting to him. He cannot look at our sin. But he loved us anyway. And so God dwelt in this room in the midst of his people while still being separated from them. And this room was covered or either covered or surrounded by what was called the veil. It was a huge cloth that kept people out and kept God separated from everybody. So that veil is a symbol of separation from God. And you could not go into this room to be in God's presence. It was an automatic death sentence if you stepped in here. The only person who could go into the room was the high priest and he went in once a year to make a blood sacrifice. They were so serious about people not going in, they would tie a rope around his waist in case he was found impure before God and God killed him, they could drag his body out. 
So the author here is using this imagery of the former temple to describe us and our relationship with God. But the former Old Testament temple represented separation. This author is using the same imagery to represent connection. If you read in verse 19 here, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That boldness to enter the holiness is imagery of being able to walk boldly into the presence of God. That holiest is speaking of that holy of holies. And so here you have the author talking to Hebrews who would have known it's a death sentence to walk into the holy of holies. And what the author is saying is, no, 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 as a Christian... As a Christian, you have the right to walk right into the presence of God. You don't have to fear the presence of God. You're not separated from Him anymore. Push the veil aside. Walk right in. You can have boldness to do that. And so he writes that to Hebrews, but he also writes that to me. I get to have access to God, and I can go to Him boldly. I don't, I don't have to beat around the bush. I can boldly go to God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, because of His blood on me. It's kind of like this. There's a difference in if I came to your house and how I would act as if I went back to my house this afternoon. If I come to your house, I'm going to be very careful about, you know, I'm going to knock on the door, come in. Do I need to take my shoes off by the door? Um, I'm going to sit in the chair. I'm going to sit very upright and be very uncomfortable because I don't belong in your house. It's your house. I'm very timid. But at my house, I'm not timid at all. I don't mean to offend anybody. I walk into my house and clothes start flying, guys. I'm going in. I'm finding my comfy clothes. I'm finding my blanket. I'm plopping down on the couch. I'm rifling through the refrigerator. I have a boldness when entering my house because I belong there. And I know I belong there. And listen, followers of Christ, we get to have that same boldness with God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. I can walk into the presence of God and I say, I belong here. I'm supposed to be here. And so the author is just reassuring us that we can enter God's presence boldly, that there is no separation. Now, in the Old Testament temple, there was that veil, the temple veil that separated God's presence from the rest of the world. And what the author here is saying is you can walk right through the veil that Jesus' blood took that veil and made an entrance way through it. And that's speaking both figuratively, we can go to God, we're not separated from his presence, but it's also speaking literally. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he gave his last breath, that veil that separated God from man was torn in half. It wasn't removed and folded up and put nicely away in case God wanted to use it again. It wasn't just picked up on a corner so you could go under. It was opened, ripped in half. There is no more separation between us and God. And so the author here is trying to get to a point to us that that we have a path to God. So take home truth number two is I can be confident in my access to God because of Jesus's blood. We often have this problem, though, truly understanding that. I'll be honest with you. I have, I have sometimes a problem with the confidence that I can go to God. I'll, I'll lay down at night when I say my prayers. I'll think back on all the things I did this today. And I was like, ooh, I really messed that one up. That's a lot of sin. And it changes my prayer life. It changes what I'm willing to ask God for. It, it changes how I go to God. But what the author here is saying is, no, no, no. Have confidence, not in your actions, but have confidence in your access to God. Not because of what you've done, but because of Jesus' blood. 
And we need to think of that. When we, when we go to God, if we're a follower of Christ, the Bible will tell us that we are washed in Jesus' blood. That means when God looks at me, he doesn't see Brian the sinner. He sees Brian the sinner covered in his son's blood. And he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ on me. Like, I get to go to God like I have the righteousness of Jesus, not because I earned it, but because Jesus gave his righteousness to me. Can you imagine that? Like, I get to go to God with the confidence that I had lived a perfect life just like Jesus did. Should that not change how I live and how I access God? I'll tell you this story. On, on Tuesday nights, is man night at my house. My wife is very gracious on Tuesday nights, and she allows me about two and a half hours where I'm free from responsibilities. I don't have to be daddy. I don't have to be husband. I don't have to be Pastor Brian. It's just me and an Xbox and my friends. I know, it's childish, but that's the truth. Tuesday night is that way. And so every Tuesday night, like, I get this time where I have no responsibilities. Well, this last Tuesday night, I logged on. I'm talking to my friends. We're talking about sports and football and politics, and we're just going on. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's this little wet dog of a toddler in a diaper standing beside me and she's just looking at me and so I'm like I take my headphones off I'm like what baby and she goes daddy read books and I'm like it's Tuesday night it's, it's Tuesday night mama reads books on Tuesday nights and she looks at me and goes and she goes daddy read books and she grabs my hand and starts pulling on me and you know what I did I told my friends I'll be back in a minute I've got to go read books she had the confidence to walk up to me because she knows she's my little girl. And she knows if she asks, Daddy will come read books with her. When I get to go to God, I get to go with that same confidence and assurance as a little girl goes to her daddy. I get to go to God knowing that he wants to hear me, that he wants to spend time with me, that he's not frustrated to see me, that he smiles, that I want to be with him. That's what it means to have access to God in this way. See, Jesus died for this level of boldness. And before I go any farther, we're going to get a little bit deeper into what this means. Before I go any farther, I think we need to just stop, and I think we all need to assess. Do I have that level of boldness with Christ, and do I have it for the right reason? Because there's so many of us that we get tied up and we want to think, I have boldness with God because I went to church today. Or I have boldness with God because I'm here and I'm not out there with doing whatever everybody else has been doing. I've not been sinning and so I have this boldness with God. No, no, no. You have boldness with God only because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. And you may be sitting here today and it may just have hit you like a ton of bricks. I've been thinking I had boldness with God for all the wrong reasons. And if you can't sit here and point to a part where you've accepted Jesus Christ's salvation into your life, you need to forget about the rest of what I'm fixing to say, and you need to focus on your need for a Savior. Because being good enough, doing the right things, will never get you to God. Only Jesus' salvation. So for the rest of us, as we continue on, this writer is going to make an argument. If I have this kind of access to the God who created the world, it should change my life. It should change my lifestyle. And he begins to list practical changes. Read with me here in verses 22 and 23. So the author here says, uh, Jesus died for us. We have boldness in him. 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. So based on this, the author is going to give us three let us statements. Let us statements means, okay, you, you have access to God. Now, go act this way. 
Use that access to God in these ways. And then the first thing he said is let us draw near to him. If I have access to God, I should be taking advantage of that. If you're a Christian and you're never getting in the word of God and you're never praying and you're never going to God and saying, I just want to be with you, you're missing out. The point is not simply, am I going to make it to heaven one day? The point is, I'm going to make it to heaven where God is and be in his presence. Right now, I can be in the presence of God. You know, God is a deeply relational being. He created humans with a plan to be in relationship with us before sin. And God, in creating us, he made us deeply relational beings. As a matter of fact, you know what the worst punishment you can get in a, in a prison is when they take all of the ability to have relationships away from you. It's a psychological torture. We're made to need connection with other people and with God. And so God wants us, God wants us to come to him, not just be confident that our sins are forgiven. God wants us to have the confidence to be in his presence, to draw close to him, to get to know him, to build a relationship and a personal connection with him. That's what being a follower of Christ is. It's not the actions, it's the relationship. And then the writer goes on to say here, secondly, let us hold fast to our profession. So what does that mean, hold fast to our profession? To hold fast to our profession does not mean quick, grasp your salvation before it runs away from you. Your salvation's not running away from you. It means hold fast, get a good grip on that belief that led you to faith in God. Because here's what happens. It happens to a lot of Christians. Is we give God our faith. We go to him with nothing but faith. We place our trust in him. We say, Jesus, I trust you with my soul. I want to be yours. And we become a Christian. And then we immediately go backwards. Two or three years of going to church. We teach a class. We serve at light the night. We pack some shoe boxes. And suddenly in our minds, all of a sudden, what we're thinking is, I wonder if I was good enough for God today. What the author is saying is don't, don't go backwards. Hold fast to your profession. Spend your whole life in assurance that God is with you. Don't have a momentary faith. Have a lifelong faith. And that means when I lose my job, I don't have to sit there and wonder, did God abandon me? I know God didn't abandon me because he sought me out when I was not his child and made me his child. That means when I'm sick and I start to wonder, is God far away? I don't have to wonder if God is far away. God is within me. Uh, that means on my deathbed, I don't have to sit there and go, goodness, I hope it was good enough. That means I can with assurance say, I put my faith in God then. I'm putting my faith in God now. Hold fast to your profession. Keep a lifelong faith. So here's what the author is giving us, is encouragement that we can draw close to God, that we can hold fast to our profession, hold fast to our faith and believe in it. And this is building a stronger, more mature faith. As a follower of Christ, from the second that you were saved, your faith should be growing. We should learn how to apply our faith in new ways to God. We should learn how to grow in connection and trust of Him. Salvation is not the end. Salvation is the beginning. And so what the author is going to continue to tell us is the next step, and this is going to go to our main point today, the next step, the next step in growing our faith. Read with me one more time, verses 24 and 25. So the third, let us. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So here we go. Here's a recipe for longevity of faith and growing your faith. Step one is access God and stay connected to Him. Step two is don't let go of that access and connection. Step three is invite others into your faith. Our third take-home truth on your notes is this. I should allow my faith to be strengthened by others. God created you. He knows what you need. He, he knows how you're going to grow in your faith. And here's what he created you as. He created you as the kind of person that will grow based upon who you're around. You're the kind of person who will grow based upon you, who you're around. If you're a Christian and you're still hanging out with all your old drinking buddies, let me tell you, they're going to pull you the wrong way. But if you're a Christian and you hang out with other people who are serious about, serious about chasing their faith down, serious about growing, your faith will grow too. And that leads us to verse 25. It's a very familiar verse. It's, it's one that you hear a lot. It says, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves. Don't quit meeting together. And most of us have probably heard that at some point or another. But generally when we look at that, we, we like rules, we like structure. And so 25, in my opinion, has become sometimes a legalistic term. Let me explain what, what legalism is. Legalism is when I'm focused on the rules and following the rules, but my heart's not in it. That's legalism. And for so many Christians, verse 25 has become a legalistic term. That means that we focus on the action, but not the purpose. We focus on the action, the, the what and where. Okay, the Bible says don't forsake assembling. We better be on church on Sunday. We better be at church on Wednesday night. We better have a church family. That's all good. But did you know that you can focus on the action that God commands you to and still miss the purpose? You can miss the reason for that? And so with this, a lot of times we focus on the action. Never get rid of, uh, or never miss church. Always be at church. But we can be at church every single time and miss the purpose. The purpose is the why. I would encourage you as you read your Bible, I would encourage you to interact with your Bible. And here, here's how I interact with the Bible. When I read the Word of God, I ask this question. I ask, why? Why do I have to do this? What is the purpose in this? And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, there's something wrong with that if I'm asking why, and then I say, I disagree with the reason why, so I choose not to do it. But the reason why tells me what the purpose of this is, and I get to chase the purpose in what we're doing. And if you look at this scripture, the action says, don't forsake assembling together. But if I ask myself why, the scripture answers that. Why don't we forsake assembling together? It gives us two alternatives. It says, you can forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. What would the opposite of that be? We would say, or you can not forsake the gathering of yourself. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together, but, listen to what it says, exhort one another. And so you see here the purpose in the gathering it is not just simply that we meet for a reason, that it's that if we meet, I'm sorry, if we neglect meeting, then we neglect the purpose of meeting, which is to exhort each other. That word just simply means to strongly encourage each other. And so it defines the purpose of our meeting. It defines the purpose of what we're doing here right now. The purpose of what we're doing right here right now is not because... Um, not because we're putting on a show for you. I'm so glad that you love coming to Ramsey Heights. This isn't a show. 
We're not coming together because it looks good on God's tally marks if you're in church and you have attendance all the time. We're not coming here because we want to check something off of our lists. We're not coming here because it means more if we pray in, the, in this building. The truth is we're coming here to be a family of faith that grows together. That's why you're here today. Look around at all the other people. If you don't like them, you need to find another church because they're the reason you're here is to worship God with them and to have your faith grown by them. So when we come together, our heart is in mutual relationships. It says in here, I believe three times, it says one another, that we build up each other or one another, that we exhort one another, which just simply means each other. It means that we, that relationship goes both ways. So let's look at the two ways that we can grow together. Take home truth number four is this, is as a church member, I'm a part of a relationship of mutual encouragement. A part of a relationship of mutual encouragement. And if you wanted to find, what does that mean, mutual encouragement? Like those shoes. Everybody likes to have their shoes complimented. You look so pretty today. Those are wonderful encouragements. But that's not what the Bible is speaking on. The Bible here is speaking on relationships that encourage us in growth. Let's read verse 24 again. So, and let us consider one another. So keep each other in mind, be together. Let us consider one another back and forth to provoke unto love and to good works. So verse 24 defines what we're encouraging each other in. We come together, not to be here in a building, but to provoke one another. Kind of sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> to provoke somebody usually sounds like you're making them angry. But what provoke really means is that there's something about me and my actions and my words that move somebody else to another action. That can be a positive action or a negative action. We tend to think of provoking somebody in the negative light. But in the Bible, it's speaking in a positive light. There should be something about you that changes other people around you. I love the way other translations put it. They, they say, spur one another towards good works and love. I like that better because I was a cowboy growing up. A little short cowboy that couldn't wear his boots when he went to the barn and it made me mad. Spur one another. Think about that imagery. You've got a cowboy and he hops up on a horse and he wants the horse to move. What does he do? Does he sit there and whisper in his ear? Cowboys wear spurs. And they use those spurs to, to make the horse do what they want it to do. And so as Christians, we come together, not just to be here, not just to enjoy each other's company. We come here together to take control of our lives and other people's lives and push each other, mutually push each other in a direction of love and good works. That's what a church group is, is a group of people that are pushing each other to grow. Now, let me ask you this question. When you go to church, is that what you're looking for in a church? I want a church of people that are going to hold me accountable, that are going to pressure me and push me to grow in my faith. This is my responsibility. We have to ask this question of Ramsey Heights. Is Ramsey Heights a church in which people come together and we push each other to grow with each other? And the truth is, if, if your answer is no to either one of those, then there's some adjusting that needs to be done. Because God's plan for your growth was that you would be around people that would spur you towards good works and love. And because God is good, all of his plans are good. So I believe what the Bible says, that it's my job, it's my job to push you towards love and good works. I believe what the Bible says, that it's a mutual relationship. It's your job to push me towards love and good works.
We gather here together with expectations and accountability on that. Take home truth number five is I should expect others to have expectations of me. I should expect others to have expectations of me. And some of you are going, I don't want to go to a church where people expect very much of me. It's a turn off. I don't want people to, you know, to, to tell me I shouldn't be missing so much church. I don't want people to, to tell me what I should or shouldn't be doing with my free time on Friday night. I sure don't want people telling me how I should spend my money. You probably don't need to be in a church then. Because we come here with expectations of each other. You should come here with expectation that others will expect things from you. Because this is how we grow. We come to a place and we say, as a member, I want to grow. Will you help me grow? And so church membership is simply inviting accountability for sin, for lack of drive, for places that we're not growing at. And I have to look at myself and I have to ask, am I open to that? Because nobody likes to be criticized. Not even positive criticism, right? Like, hey, you can do better at this. Oh, you don't like me. But the truth is, that's what God wants us to do, is be open to growth through being pushed, through being spurred, through being provoked. I want to share a couple of stories with you of, of some accountability, and, and I want to be very clear what I'm about to say. I, I think very highly of this pastor. I've got a picture coming up. This is Matt Chandler. I want to tell you Matt Chandler's story of accountability. About 20 years ago, Matt Chandler took a church in Dallas, Texas. Had about 160 people going to it on Sunday morning. It was a, you know, a fairly decent-sized church, but it was still pretty small. And he became the pastor there. And over the past 20 years, Matt Chandler, well, God through Matt Chandler, I guess I should say, Matt Chandler ha has led this church to grow to over 14,000 people. When he did that, this church went multi-campus, which means one church meeting in multiple places. Most, most pastors that do that keep control of those. He said, no, spin those off into autonomous churches. And he began planting churches, making his membership go down so these other churches could serve God across the world. Matt Chandler is an example of how to lead a biblical church in a modern world. Uh, Jessica and I actually went to hear Matt Chandler preach this summer when we were in... Um, in Dallas, and his church, the village church that he's the pastor of, is where we loosely base our discipleship program off of. I cannot speak highly enough of Matt Chandler, his character, his drive, and his motivation for God. He's not the typical, I want to be rich, mega church pastor. He is a man of God. Let me tell you what happened just a few weeks ago, and I think he would be okay with me telling you this story. He, he had developed a relationship with a woman online. Now, I want to be clear. It was, it was put out there that both his wife knew that they were talking. Her husband knew they were talking. The relationship was not romantic or sexual. It was just a friendship. And they began to talk online. And a lady in his church came up to this mega church pastor and she said, Matt, I have some concerns about the relationship you have with my friend. Do you think that's appropriate to be communicating with her online as much as you are? And Matt Chandler was blown away. He's like, I, I never considered we were doing anything wrong. We weren't cheating. We weren't romantically involved. There were no feelings. We were just discussing and had developed a friendship. And here's what he did. It would have been so easy for him to roll off and say, ah, who does she know? But he didn't. He immediately went to other pastors in the church and he said, this was just brought to my attention. I'm going to give you full access to my phone, full access to my social media accounts. I want you to go through and hold me accountable if I'm failing. And after a thorough process of looking at his social media accounts, the church decided, the other pastor of that church went to Matt and said, we believe you crossed the line here. And the line, I won't try to say what was or wasn't going on. They just simply said, we believe that as pastor, you should not be that familiar with a female member of this church privately. 
And so they ask him to step back for a couple months. We want to hold you accountable, Matt. Step back from leadership for a couple months while we grow you. I'll be clear. I'm not talking bad about Matt Chandler. I'm fixing to tell you something that I respect. Matt Chandler stood in front of his church and he said, this is what happened. It was not romantic or sexual, but I crossed the line. And even I am to be held accountable. And he said, I want to commend the elders of this church who could have swept this under the rug, who could have said it was no big deal, but held me accountable. Here's what I love about Matt Chandler. He expects for others to expect big things of him. I love that story. There's, there's another church that I like. This is Harris Creek Baptist Church in, um, in, in uh, Waco, Texas. And they have a 24-hour rule. I want to institute this here. Among their staff, I don't know if you guys know this, but sometimes when you have a big group of people, people don't get along. Did y'all know that? And then, and then you start talking about the people you don't get along with. Oh, that brother Larry, you know, he does this, he does that. And here's the 24-hour rule they have at Harris Creek. If you walk up to a staff member of that church and you start to say something negative about another person in that church, you start to gossip about them. The 24-hour rule is this, is they will say, stop. You have 24 hours to go tell that person you're talking about that you were talking about them or I will tell them for you. And every member of this church staff does that. And what they've done is they begin to hold each other accountable for gossip. Instead of going, yeah, I know, I don't like him either. They say, no, you need to go settle this between you and them and tell them what your problem is. You're not going to tell me. They hold each other accountable. These are pictures of what it means to be followers of Christ. We hold each other accountable and we expect to be held accountable by other people. And that means that we need relationships in church where somebody can walk up to me and I'm open to somebody saying, Brian, I feel like you're really dealing with some bitterness right now. Brian, you haven't forgiven that person and you need to work on forgiving them. You need people in your life that will come up to you and say, hey, have you been drinking again? You need people that love you enough to say, should you be dating that person? Are you remaining sexually pure? Are, are you diving into internet, internet pornography? We need people that ask us those hard questions and hold us accountable, not judgmentally, but to keep us from sin and to grow us in Christ. But the other side of that is true because we hold one another accountable. We should also take home truth number six. I should have expectations of others. As a follower of Christ in this church, you should have expectations of the behavior of other people. And you should be willing to hold others accountable, including me. By the way, you're welcome to hold me accountable when I fail. There are people in this church who I've asked to do that. You should be willing to walk up to somebody else and say, hey, I feel like you need to address this in your life. Now, there's a way to do this and a way not to do this. So, so let me go over this. How do we do this? How do we hold others in our church accountable in a biblical manner? Well, well the first way is that you've got to hold yourself accountable first. Uh, like, 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 you're welcome to come up and talk to me about bitterness, but don't do it while you're hungover. You're welcome to come up and talk to me uh, about a problem I have in my life, but don't tell me about that if you have unrepentant um, sexual behavior in your life. Like, 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 we have to live holiness before we can demand holiness of others. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but we must pursue holiness. Secondly is inclusion. You guys, listen, this is a very timid church. I talk about this all the time. I love you all. I'm not talking down to you. We're timid people, including me. I see you guys walk in here every Sunday and you're looking at people and you're like, hi, and then you'll sit down. Like, like, like as a church member, here, here's what we should be doing. Grab the new people 
Tell me your name. Tell me where you're from. Come sit by me. I want to build a relationship with you. That's your responsibility to grab other people and include them in your lives and build relationships in, in which you can hold them accountable and they can hold you accountable and then encourage people in the right direction within those relationships. Now, here's how we don't do this because there's some of us that might be too good at holding other people accountable. We don't walk around judging everybody's actions. I don't know if you guys know this. There are two church offices, uh, pastor or elder and deacon. Uh, church busybody, just because every church has one, does not mean it's a church position. Like, like we are not called to walk around judging everybody and what they're doing and talking down to or about them. What we're called to do is pull people in close in a loving relationship in which they trust us to provide direction. And through love and grace and prayer, come to them and say, this is something that I feel like you're struggling with. And I want to hold you accountable, not because I'm better than you, but because sin is the enemy and sin is creeping into your life. See, as we come here as a church, we have to believe the gospel. And that's why accountability is so important because we do, we do, we do, we, we believe the gospel. And here's what the gospel says. Live if you want to start making your way up here. The gospel says that sin is dangerous. The gospel says that sin will kill you. That the wages of sin is death, which means that there is a physical death, a spiritual death. If you sin in the wrong places, there's relational death. Sin brings death into our lives. And so the truth is, if we really love each other, we come to each other and we say, I don't accept sin in your life because I believe it will kill you. I believe it will harm you. And so we lovingly pull each other away from sin. So let me give us this challenge as a church. Let's not be the kind of people who show up on Sunday morning and leave at 12 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Let's be the kind of church that, that brings relationships into the church where we hold each other accountable, where we invite people, look into my life and tell me where I can grow because I believe sin is a big deal. Here's how big of a deal sin is. My Savior was savagely beaten. My Savior was hung on a cross where he cried out in agony because of my sin. It's not a small thing that I can excuse in me or that you can excuse in you or we can excuse in each other. Sin is a big deal. And we come here and we fight that because we're followers of Christ and Christ used his life and his death to fight sin for us so that we can be free from it. And we're not going back to it. We're not going to let it rule our lives when my God gave his life to free me from it. So this morning I just want to ask you a question. Number one, some of you I asked a question earlier. Have you received salvation? The rest of this doesn't matter until you've received salvation. But for the rest of us, let me just ask you, are you a church member who holds others accountable and who is open to others holding you accountable? Let's stand and worship.